the Constitution of the United States. Was it a pro-slavery document? Now, at its inception, this must have a declaration. This was not even really a, a conversation that was had in the public sphere. Uh, you initially had a, a very small group of abolitionists um, that were unhappy with the Constitution. Um, but they were a very, a very uh, small share of even the larger anti-slavery uh, sentiment at the time. And a very good argument can be made uh, that the principles and the really kind of the, the programs and logical follow-through of gradual emancipation uh, versus the uh, using the federal government to enact uh, a national abolition that was very much the uh, preferable program to pursue. And that's exactly what the founders thought and the framers and a vast majority of anti-slavery advocates at the time. Uh, very few were uh, pushing for federally mandated, forced, and required abolition across uh, the entire nation, uh, such as it was at this time. However, failures of the Articles of Confederation uh, kind of necessitated a revisiting uh, of the you know, national uh, government, its roles, functions, versus the state's authorities, uh, and the like, which is interesting and very insightful already. Uh, there's kind of this weird mysticism uh, surrounding uh, what should have been presumed, it was presumably the consequences of, say, the Declaration and the Constitution, uh, when in fact uh, these things were not intended to just magically transform the landscape, uh, but were meant to put the systems into place for these things to happen. Uh, much like the Declaration, when it was signed, didn't just erase thousands of years of human tradition, history, and ingrained culture, uh, and for and all of a sudden every Southern slaveholding Democrat felt themselves equal to blacks. Uh, the Constitution was much the same way. This was uh, acknowledged at the time regularly. Uh, in more contemporary times, it's kind of been buried by historical revisionists, where instead they'll point to this kind of lack of fulfilling this juvenile fantasy of just instant transformation uh, as evidence that the Constitution was not a a good document or an anti-slavery document and that it really wasn't that great and that it should be, you know, ultimately be rejected, replaced, upgraded, or what have you, which uh, is also not a new conversation. Uh, that began uh, with the rise, really, of the Democratic Party and its desire to uh, force federal protections on slavery and for slavery and to expand slavery. So hold that little detail in mind. Uh, to quote uh, Dr. Harry Jaffa, uh, he, when he describes the founding more generally, uh, but referring to the Declaration and Constitution, uh, he explains, and I quote, Yet how to convert these principles into political institutions, even for themselves, was hardly a settled matter, and how to extend them to all those to whom they were rightfully bound to extend them represented still another challenge. And what Dr. Joff is explaining here is quite simply what I did in the introduction. These documents outlined a series of governing philosophies, what they viewed to be timeless truths, and 
But just acknowledgement of those truths was not the same as creating an entire system of government over one of the largest land masses in the world and having that function well. And you can see the initial failure in that with the Articles of Confederation. Uh, so this really just kind of highlights that whole concept, this kind of American experimentation. Uh, and <clears throat> the Constitution was very clearly an improvement on the Articles uh, in virtually every way. But speaking specifically just to the Constitution as it applies uh, on the subject of slavery, and you can really take these same, uh, same arguments and, and uh, well, details and extend them into issues of uh, sex and creed and, and virtually all the, the little check boxes and, uh, that we tend to uh, use to organize people, uh, all the different uh, methods and machinations of identity politics, uh, because the Constitution uh, rejected and denied uh, any attempts made at the time, really, to uh, view people as anything other than Americans. So when you get into the Constitutional Convention, there's a very similar circumstance that uh, which existed with the Declaration, and that you had competing interests, uh, North-South, uh, anti-slavery, pro-slavery. Uh, those states that would later become uh, kind of the hotbed of the Democratic Party were, of course, adamantly pro-slavery uh, during the uh, kind of the onset of the uh, convention, of which we can thank uh, James Madison for his notes. Uh, otherwise, we might not even know these conversations. But then uh, the delegates from South Carolina uh, and other others, but generally we're speaking of South Carolina. We have John Rutledge and Charles Pinckney. And upon entering into conversations about how to form the federal government, what its powers would be, they declared that if there was any meddling with the importation of Negroes, that's a direct quote from uh, Charles Pinckney, that they would never agree to any kind of federal government that had that power. Now, other slave states joined in. You had uh, Hugh Williamson from North Carolina, and he spoke more on behalf of the entire uh, southern southern states, really. He said, uh, you know, if, if, if the intent here is to you know, create a government that can control and restrict, and of course, the fear being eventually eliminate slavery, uh, then there's just, there's just no way that uh, the southern states are going to be on board. So that's, that's the environment going into uh, the Constitutional Convention. So really that left two options, right? Uh, there could be concessions made, compromises made, and I would argue some of the most brilliant acts of statescraft ever made. Uh, that would ensure the passage of a constitution, and that that constitution would then, uh, as it was designed and framed, uh, would allow for the ultimate extinction of slavery. Or the second option is they could grandstand, uh, you know, they could shout, uh, take a position of moral superiority, demand that all the slave states uh, abolish slavery, release their slaves, uh, and in so doing, of course, uh, destroy any hope of a constitution 
and any hope of a stronger union. Uh, but they would have made uh, favorable headlines uh, for both radical abolitionists at the time uh, and for the kind of the armchair cr criticisms uh, launched towards them from the modern day backwards in time, uh, who, uh, when critics you know, decry the fact that abolition wasn't codified in the original Constitution. <clears throat> now, there's really just three primary elements of the Constitution that are most contested when it comes to trying to understand uh, is this pro-slavery or is it anti-slavery? Uh, you know, that's, that's your, your, kind of your slave clauses, as they're kind of generally referred to. Uh, you have the slave trade clause, you have the fugitive slave clause, and you have, of course, the infamous three-fifths compromise. Now, each one of those I'm going to address individually. Uh, just for ease and convenience, uh, for everyone else. Now, what's interesting about just kind of looking at the overall kind of uh, mindset coming into the convention, you know, we've already addressed that in southern states, from entering the door, we're threatening, hey, you know, if you go against our interests, we're just going to leave. Uh, we still have the Articles of Confederation. That's our agreed-upon compact between the states. And under the Articles, you can do nothing to us as far as slavery goes. The southern states really didn't have much of or anything to benefit from in, from a, a stronger uh, kind of federal government system at this time. And also at this time, uh, anywhere, I mean, one of the, the kind of the estimate I go with is around two-thirds of the entire uh, economy was from the South. Uh, of course, those are raw numbers. That's not counting... Uh, you know, them selling things to the north that then had to be processed or what have you. But either way, they were a, a tremendously significant uh, economic driver of the new nation. Uh, and, of course, this is uh, 1787. There are still hostilities with, with Britain. Uh, there's still uh, the potential for uh, Spanish invasion. There's, there's several things going on uh, where a newly formed fledgling country really needs to have that income, especially when it comes to the most basic of governmental purposes, uh, which is defending its citizens, uh, especially to outside invaders. Now, coming from the other side, the other perspective here, uh, you know, we can learn a little bit here uh, about uh, the anti-slavery part. So Colonel Mason, uh, he kind of reiterated a lot of the annoyances that were described by others. Uh, he said, and I quote, uh, This infernal traffic originated in the avarice of British merchants. The British government constantly checked the attempts of Virginia to put a stop to it. Uh, now, this, this might remind you of the uh, omitted passage of the Declaration of Independence, and for good reason. Uh, it was well established and understood, although not as well spoken in the modern day, uh, that slavery only existed in the colonies at this time and now at the States, uh, because of British coercion. Uh, the British Empire had or gained materially very much so from the trafficking of slaves. And, of course, it was meant to destabilize the country, uh, which they were very correct in that as well. Now, Oliver, Oliver Ellsworth, uh, he very famously noted, and I quote, As population increases... 
poor laborers will be so plenty as to render slaves useless. Slavery, in time, will not be a speck in our country. Provision is already made in Connecticut for abolishing it, and the abolition has already taken place in Massachusetts. Now, Roger Sherman, which was, he was another delegate, he shared that opinion. Uh, he said, and I quote, uh, that the abolition of slavery seemed to be going on in the United States, and that the good sense of the several states would probably, by degrees, uh, complete that. So what we're seeing here is, is that, that found, well, when we refer to the founding understanding of slavery as a necessary evil, transplanted, but doomed to its ultimate extinction, and a lot of that of that doom, that uh, that death sentence of sorts, can't, comes from the Constitution, uh, which we'll learn as we explore these different uh, so-called slave clauses and how they uh, damaged slavery uh, to a tr- terrific and tremendous extent. Uh, but I mean, again, examining it as a whole, uh, which I know you know, in, in in kind of our historical hindsight and all the many advantages that brings, uh, you know the. An informed person might wonder, well, how were they so wrong about the de- the the gradual decay of slavery? Uh, and for that conversation, uh, we'll discuss Calhounism specifically as kind of reshaping the entire political landscape. But that's getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit. So let's examine uh, kind of some broader perspectives on the Constitution before we get into the specific clauses. Uh, so, of course, Frederick Douglass, uh, the most revered abolitionist of the 19th century, uh, and a man who his numerous uh, speeches and publications should be read by everyone, uh, especially self-made men. Uh, he began life as a radical abolitionist uh, who denounced the founding, the founders, the framers, you know, uh, the whole doctrine. And then through education, however, he came to radically transform these ideas. Uh, so his own kind of misconceptions on the founding uh, were a result of, of ignorance. And once he, uh, as men of intellectual honesty do, uh, chose to kind of rectify that ignorance, he was obviously uh, taken aback by the actual function of these things. And in one of his many uh, defenses of the Constitution. He notes very uh, accurately, and I quote, abolish slavery tomorrow, and not a sentence or a syllable of the Constitution need be altered. It was purposely so framed as to give no claim, no sanction to the claim of property in man. If in, if in its origin slavery had any relation to the government, it was only as the scaffolding to the magnificent structure to be removed as soon as the building was completed. So what Douglas is highlighting here is an idea that's going to carry out through our examination of the slave trade clauses. That slavery was intentionally, both as an institution and even the very words, they were intentionally omitted from the Constitution uh, for very great purpose and intent. Uh, Thomas Lloyd's, he was a uh, another very, very potent kind of uh, anti-slavery uh, not so much activist, I would say, at this point in human, yeah, in American history, but uh, just a strong figure uh, in, in opposition to slavery. And both he and James Iredell, uh, they encountered, of course, 
people who were unhappy with the Constitution whenever they went back to their uh, respective states and discussed it with, uh, you know, their, well, their citizens and also their uh, state legislatures. And Thomas Lloyds addresses this so well. He says, uh, provision is made that Congress shall have power to prohibit the importation of slaves after the year 1808. But the gentlemen in opposition accused this system of a crime because it, because it not, has not prohibited them at once. Now this next part is key. I suspect those gentlemen are not well acquainted with the business of the diplomatic body, or they would know that an agreement might be made that did not perfectly accord with the will and pleasure of any one person. Instead of finding fault with what has been gained, I am happy to see a disposition in the United States to do so much. So, he's very eloquently, as they <laughs> apparently were as a species back then, uh, he's very eloquently explaining, hey, you know, you, you might not like this because it doesn't satisfy what you feel like the end goal should be, what it should have accomplished. But you're only, you only hold that position because you're not aware of the actual circumstances on the ground. Uh, and that it's truly a success that we accomplished as much as we did. Um, which is a, a very accurate uh, statement to make. Now, James Iredell, he also spoke in the Constitution. He had some kind of uh, unhappy people back in his home state as well. Uh, again, thinking, well, what are all these things? Uh, you know, why does slavery still exist? And he says very simply, he says, Consider then what would be the difference between our present situation in this respect if we do not agree to the Constitution and what it will be if we do agree to it. If we do not agree to it, we do remedy do we remedy the evil? Of course, referring to slavery. No, sir, we do not. For if the Constitution be not adopted, it will be in the power of every state to continue it forever. They may or may not abolish it at their discretion. But if we adopt the Constitution, the trade must cease after 20 years, whether particular states please so or not. Surely then we gain by it. Uh, so the, kind of the, the views coming in at this time, and it, it is a bit of a point of irony too that I should mention, uh, that even the delegates from the slave states thought that they won in this. And this was an intentional thing and really just reflects on the brilliance of the uh, kind of the founding era anti-slavery uh, principled men at the, at the convention and how they were able to convince uh, the slave states to really to concede so much, uh, which we'll explore here shortly uh, with the slave trade clauses. But what uh, Thomas Lloyd, especially in Iredell, uh, highlight here is that the things that are accomplished, the principles, the morals, and the really the governmental structure that they gain from the Constitution, not only contributes to American uh, exceptionalism in that it's the only Constitution in the world at the time and really since that is structured and phrased in such a way that it acknowledges that that authority uh, originates in the citizens, uh, and then. We have our, our separate systems of governance through the different layers, for, and each one of those layers is meant to safeguard the protection of citizens and to enforce rights and, and all these fun things. Uh, but it was also the first uh, constitution at the time uh, that, as part of a founding document, restricted uh, the slave trade. 
So the major tenets of these would be the, uh, the slave trade clauses. So we're going to address each one of those individually uh, and really explore kind of the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of the arguments and the reasons and within for where are these slave trade clauses so often maligned in the modern day? Were they actually pro-slavery devices?